I have to definitely have snacks throughout the day. Sometimes I drink a Gatorade during my last block because I'm like, oh my gosh, I can feel my nerves are like, they need some some electrolytes. <laughs> like I could use a cup of coffee, but I can't drink coffee at 4 p.m. Like that would not work. <laughs> What I love about this episode is that CL touches on so many points that in my mind make CL CL, i.e. being a family girl, philosophy, okay, okay, I won't spoil too much else. This is Educate, a podcast where I explore the world through conversations about education. I think about how we were raised and just the conditions of our house and like how much love was here. And also just having siblings, you have this level of competition um, that's just already there. Mm -hmm. And the way that you deal with it just depends. I mean, some families, you know, it's maybe it's a little harsh, but I think in our family, it was always like friendly competition, sort of like just let me show you what I've got, you know, and let's see how we match up. And this is where you can improve. It was never like a conscious conversation that we had with each other, like, you know, like, I'm getting this grade in this class and you should be getting a better grade in this class. It was more like, you know, I was seeing my sister go to governor school, like a boarding school for high school, her yeah. 11th and 12th grade years. And then she went off to Duke. And then my brother Luke uh-huh. was valedictorian and he went to Emory. And of course, like athletically and then like, you know, creatively, they were also very talented. So I always, and Wes, of course, I mean, he was inspirational for me too, because you know, he was so driven. He still is. And he studied construction management at Western Carolina University. He played football there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I think he always knew what he wanted to do. He's really inspiring because he's so focused and driven. And anytime I want something and I tell him my dream, I feel like he's always like, okay, you can institute a plan for that. So why don't you tell me your plan or tell me your mm-hmm. budget? I just love that from him, you know, so I always appreciate that. Yeah. And then with my sister, um, she's always just been very academically strong and a wonderful thinker, really curious, um, really funny too, honestly. I mean, Wes, of course, <laughs> is super funny. Um, they all are. God. But um, she she went to the governor's school for science and math. It's like a boarding school for juniors and seniors in high school in South Carolina. So mm. there's an application process and everything. And she, Damn. I think she played soccer and basketball there um, mm-hmm. and volleyball. And she, let's see. And then, I mean, she went on to go to Duke. So, um, and yeah. then Luke, um, I think I mentioned him before, just in terms of our connection with our classes, because we went to the same high school and we also had, a really similar trajectory. We were, you know, really deep into sports and also academics. So I always felt like he was, you know, my study buddy. Um, I mean, we used to study together and then we'd take breaks and watch like the office and pop popcorn. But <laughs> anyway, so that's hella um, cute. Yeah. I feel like, and he played basketball and golf and he also dabbled in a lot of different sports, like cross country swimming, which I think he's such a great model for the youth in the sense of like, you don't have to specialize super early and think that you have to play one sport all year long. You know I mean? It's good to have those breaks and also experience yes. your body through different sports. You know, I wish I, I knew that. that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. I wish, I wish I, I had 
had someone in my ear saying like, you know, just, just try them all if you want, you know. But yeah, I think it, it, it was always just so, I was going to say enriching or like invigorating to have siblings because there's, there's always inspiration there. I mean, that's not to say if you don't have siblings or if you have fewer siblings than three, then you don't have that inspiration. But I just feel like I just knew what could be done. And I knew that I came from a family who did that. And I was like, yes, I can do that too. And I want that. I had those aspirations. So, What's like the age difference between all the siblings again? So Luke is two years older than me. Sarah is five and a half years older than me. And Wes is nine years older than me. So between Mm. Luke and Sarah, there's like three and a half years. Um, Between Sarah and Wes, there's about um, three and a half as well. That's that's cool. Like amongst y'all though, like, it was like a decade of schooling happening at all times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think my parents thought they were going to stop at three, actually. And then I showed yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> and still, like, a lot of parenting going on with kids in school, you know. And, of course, we know my parents are educators, so we were raised yes, by the they bills. are. Okay, well, that's <laughs> one of my questions. How does it yes. feel to come from a family of educators? And how did how did that influence your, or did it influence your decision to now pursue teaching? I feel so honored to come from a family of educators. I mean, of course, my, my mom has been a teacher since I've been her child, you know, even before me, of course. Um, yeah. She was an administrator before that. Uh, my dad came to it a bit late. He started, I think, 15 years ago. More than 15, actually. Um, Almost 17, I think. This is his 17th year. He used to be in, um, he used to work in safety for a mica mine company that my family used to manage in Kings Mountain, North Carolina, which is like 20 minutes from York. And, I mean, he Mm -hmm. did a lot of education there, like trainings and stuff. Um, Because, I mean, I think outside of, the traditional education field, I mean, organizations are invested in research and development and learning, you know, and people have presentations all the time and they, they teach mm-hmm. their employees. So, I mean, I think it's really cool because he works at the same school that I work at and we were both in a professional collaboration um, meeting on Wednesday and I had never really heard my dad's mm-hmm. why, like why education and he answered and he said, mm-hmm. because I thought to myself, why not? You know, I've, I've done this for a long time. I feel like, and he was saying that he feels like he's almost always been teaching and he, and he has four kids and he, he loves youth, you know, and he loves connecting with people. So yeah, he, he switched yeah. to education, but my mom, yeah, I think it was always like a sense of, of I'm honored to be a teacher's daughter. Because she just took so much, mm-hmm. um, so much of her work. She it, it came from the heart, you know. And I feel like she she's such a hard worker, and she's so dedicated and disciplined. And I mean, she was teacher of the year for our school district in twenty seventeen. Yeah, um, I was going to ask about that. I feel like your mom's legit yeah. in the yeah, in the York she, educational landscape. <laughs> 
Yeah, she really got into mindfulness and um, and fitness, frankly. I mean, both, I think, go hand in hand for helping us to feel better and just live our best lives. But um, And she was thinking about the role of mindfulness in education, and she teaches her students, like, lessons on mindfulness. Mm. And I didn't know that. How to, That's cool. Yeah, how to, how to be in touch with your breath and observe your surroundings and, you know, how to just calm down your, your nervous system because – you know, a lot of the students that, that we serve are, um, they live in, in high poverty conditions. So like, and like, if you look at the statistics in York, I think it's like 70% of our students are on free and reduced lunch. Um, and so there is like, definitely, you know, their experiences and like the conditions that they are in in life. I mean, it's not always the most conducive to feeling like yeah what's the next thing that I can learn you know um a lot of people are surviving you know and like or they're they're hungry you know so I think yeah um I really love how she she found something that that could that she could contribute you know that's you know like totally integral to who we are as humans and also super important to to incorporate in the classroom so What's your mom teaching right now? Um, she's an English teacher, sixth grade teacher. Yeah. Okay. So she like incorporates the mindfulness as like a part of like uh, the actual, just like as a separate thing in class, like a, I don't know, like, you know, yeah. like just like a before but, class we're doing mindfulness practice. Right. Yeah. And then she like, she also has every day they read for a certain amount of time and then they write about it. So there already mm-hmm. is that that entry routine, you know, and I think yeah, and and reading is such a you know it's just such a quiet practice most of the time, you know. You have to you know create class norms where you know we're being quiet at this time so everyone can can focus on their reading, and so I think also I feel like that kind of classroom anyway would already be be great for for bringing this material in, you know. Yeah. I think this this last semester she did like two, like a a day where she did all mindfulness maybe. So it was like a Friday before Christmas break or something, which I think was a perfect mm-hmm. time to do it, you know? Kids are going to yeah. be home for 2 weeks with their families. They haven't been spending this much time with their families since summer maybe. So, you know. Yeah. Um you kind of mentioned like the types of students that are in York, but could you just talk a little bit more about, yeah, what's like York like generally and like the schooling system? That's a very broad question, but I guess like where you work (laughs) and just like, yeah, what schools are like generally? Like, do people go to college, all that good stuff? So, um, York is pretty small, it's about 45 minutes from Charlotte, North Carolina. It's York is in South Carolina though. Um, and so, and it's, you know, rural in the sense that it's not necessarily suburban. It's not Fort Miller, Rock Hill. It's not like a bedroom community of Charlotte necessarily, but I mean, it is in a way. Um, but yeah, we've got more farmland. We have like Hickory Grove and Sharon. It's much more rural. Um, and then 
I mean, I technically live in like the country as well. I don't live in like the city limits, <laughs> but I would say the population is maybe like, okay, don't quote me on this. Maybe like 7,000, maybe 9,000. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe lower. Mm-hmm. 4,000. Damn, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's too big. That's too big of a gap. I should give you like more definitive answer. It's definitely growing. It's, I would say 7,000. <laughs> it's definitely, but anyway. I mean, it's still small. I did not realize it was yeah, that small. Yeah, very small. Yeah, you should look up some pictures of downtown York whenever <laughs> whenever you can. <laughs> anyway, um I actually like sometimes a part of me hesitates to say that I teach at a school that serves like at risk youth or marginalized youth because I feel like mm-hmm. these are definitely terms that we learned in college to describe the world, but um it's it's interesting because I was just listening to this podcast called um, On Being, and there's this this person. His name his first name is Travian. I can't remember his last name. I have to look it up. But and he was talking about how we um, a lot of times the way that we view the world is through deficit framing. So we think about like all these mm-hmm. things that are wrong with people, and instead yeah. of like asset framing, which is like what does this person contribute. Um, like what dreams do they have that they would like to fulfill and like what are their aspirations? And it's also, Mm -hmm. you know, cutting to the core of the language of, okay, so poverty, it's, it's a state, like it's a circumstance. It's what people experience. It's not like a trait or an identity. It's not like he said, like people don't wake up and they, they think, Oh, I want to be in poverty, you know? So it's not something that's like generative or like building of culture. So, I definitely feel like these terms are so bureaucratic too. You know, it's like what the state uses or the district uses mm-hmm. to talk about this community and its needs. But, you know, like what are some ways that we could show that education can be more full spirited, you know, like say I aspire, I am. So, but it is true that um, a large population in york is in poverty like i think it's 25 percent of working families don't have enough you know to provide meals for their children and so we have so many fundraisers all the time and like um a lot of of people at my school and just in the community like religious leaders who work um with our families here i would say the high school um and especially considering we're rural I don't think education is always a priority, but I still think that, you know, that's the other side of it is our role is to instill the value of an education into young minds, you know? And so I feel like what better place to be a teacher than here, you know? Yeah. Especially because I grew up here and like, I know the dynamics of like the student body. I played sports with people who, you know, definitely didn't have the same economic background that I had, socioeconomic. And so, um, yeah. It's cool. You can come yeah. back as a college grad and like be an example in that way. Yeah. And I also think like, it's so interesting whenever, and I never like outright say, yeah, I just came back from this place or, you know, I don't ever want to yeah. present myself with like pretense, <laughs> if that makes sense. But sometimes like, I just got back from way, my study like, abroad. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> um, 
I mean, I think more so this semester, I talk about my experience in at Smith and like abroad and Mm -hmm. in sports, but I I try to insert it in like the most natural way, you know, like they'll ask me a question. Have you ever traveled or, you know, stuff like that. Um, But I did include like a presentation at the beginning of the year, which I think just helps them to see that I'm a human being, you know, (laughs) and I love to learn. But anyway, um, what does it feel like coming back into the, that education system as a teacher instead of a student how's the circle of life been (laughs) i have really grown to love it um and i i think this is a perfect time to insert a quote (laughs) (laughs) lay it on me is this the long quote that you have for me (laughs) okay so this is yeah, it's long in the sense that I handwrote it and I realized when I was finished that I don't usually handwrite quotes. I usually just copy and paste them. So, you know, I was like, wow, this is a long, this is a long journey. Okay. So I don't know if you've ever heard of Wendell Berry. He's, he's an excellent writer um, and thinker, frankly. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more maybe after I, I finish reading this, but So it's from Higher Education and Home Defense. I believe it's an essay. He's an essayist. So So education in the true sense, of course, is an enablement to serve. Both the living human community in its natural household or neighborhood and the precious cultural possessions that the living community inherits or should inherit. To educate is literally to bring up to bring young people to a responsible maturity, to help them to be good caretakers of what they have been given, to help them to be charitable towards fellow creatures. That makes my heart beat. (laughs) And if this education is to be used well, it is obvious that it must be used somewhere. It must be used where one lives, where one intends to continue to live. It must be brought home. I love that. I love that. Yeah, it does feel so, um, I just feel like it, if I could use two words, it feels both like symmetrical and synchronous in my life. Just to, to have this, um, this, it's almost like a full circle. Yeah. I mean, I didn't imagine this for myself for the longest time, even at Smith. I mean, I think I've always kind of imagined myself teaching in some capacity. Um, I didn't really get specific in those, those visions, but I think, yeah, I think for me, of course, the pandemic made me reconsider my priorities and make some shifts and figure out things that I was really wanting that I wasn't maybe listening to. Um, Yeah. And coming home has been that for me. And like, you know, I'm a family girl, so it's been wonderful to be around my family and then also start my working life in a familiar place. Because I think, you know, sometimes you need to get away to really grow. And then other times you need to go home to really grow. And I've definitely learned that in the past couple of years. Um, Did you foresee yourself coming home 
and teaching or was there was there ever any like resistance to that yeah I think I think because it was so familiar and my parents were teachers I think I was under the impression that oh like you know I need to go out and do something else and step in this direction I was kind of running away from education in a way and now it's like I'm chasing it (laughs) but but yeah I think and I think I always had that that idea like even with my siblings and this was like sort of like the competition part I guess was like they were doing something and of course I wanted to do something similar like I wanted to excel in a certain way or but I wanted to like do it differently you know I wanted to make my mark in a way or um yeah I guess it it did come down to like wanting to prove something in a way but like now it's not about that at all for me like I wanted to succeed and get ahead and like progress but for me that meant like yeah go away get away from York and like go to a city but now it's actually yeah I'm I don't think that way anymore I mean, that's cool, though, that you realized and accepted that sooner rather than later, instead of taking some, like, roundabout way only to just come back home. (laughs) Like, it's better to start now, you know? I mean, I think, I wondered, I do kind of wonder, like, if not for the circumstances, you know, maybe I would have had, like, another chunk of my years spent I don't know in Switzerland who knows where I would have been and and then I would have also found my way back here anyway like at 28 or 33 who knows but we'll never know I fully embrace this moment I'm loving it but yeah (laughs) damn girl okay but how is teaching itself like what was okay what was it like getting because before teaching like the teaching that you're doing now what did you have like teaching experience or how has it been like getting into teaching and how is it going what are you learning so and I did a lot of um like coaching I guess or like not coaching but you know like athletes whenever we're in high school a lot of times we'll do those camps so I was like a camp counselor type for sports coach uh, or for sports camps. And then um, also at Smith, I did, you know, that Kensington um, program where they, the Kensington International School in, where was it? In Springfield. We could go and tutor students. So a lot of it was students who had, their families had immigrated to the United States and they had help with English. And so I would go and like read with them. And it was like all ages. I think the most fun age was fifth and sixth grade. That was fun. I think that was the main age though, actually. Wasn't it? Anyway. So yeah, that was um, the only real experience I think I had. I mean, I did some subbing like in the sum- like in the winter and then like right before summer break, like whenever I would come home from college just to get um, some extra work experience, you know? Um and right after I finished my master's, I, that's what I did. I, I subbed for a sixth grade science class. And then I did some virtual human geography teaching. And then I got my my position now, Spanish, in August. 
So I'm new. I'm fresh. What are the what are the hardest and or what are your like favorite and and the harder parts of being a teacher? My favorite parts are connecting with the students and yeah, hearing about their inspirations in life, um, like what drives them to do what they do and also their interests. And I love whenever they have those like little moments where they ask a question and it might not be super related, but it's tangential or something. And then somebody else pops in and says, this is why it's that way. Or I love those moments. Those are so fun. And seeing my students in public, I'm still like finding a comfort level with that, you know, but it is kind of cool because of course they have a life in this community outside of school. So that's interesting. So I think it's just fun to see them grow and make those connections and then also like see the the fuller side of their life, you know, whether it's at the grocery store or at a concert in Charlotte <laughs> last night. Um, but I think, I mean, it's such an immense responsibility to be a teacher, you know, because young people are so impressionable, I think, especially at this age. It's such a transformative age and there's so much possibility for them. So, um, What's the age range of your students? The age range is um, ninth through 12th, predominantly ninth and 10th grade, though, because it's Spanish one that I'm teaching right now. How do you see like their teenageness play out in like the classroom? Is it like, yeah, like how, I mean, how, what's it like working with teenagers, basically? I think it's definitely a challenge because emotionally, a lot of what's going on with them. They can't help it, you know, just like the hormonal stuff. Um, I mean, honestly, it does get better. Don't you think it gets better? Like we're in our almost mid-20s, basically. And I feel like developmentally, I think for the most part, the the boy students are more expressive, you know, and there's like less of a filter with them. And sometimes their comments, I have to really navigate i'm finding a place where i have to navigate like well how do you how have you navigated like um needing to reprimand students is there school protocol for that or do you have your own like approach for handling them kids first and foremost it's so important to develop procedures and expectations (laughs) sounds so like a part of me feels like god this is such rigidity or like I don't like being the heavy, you know, I really don't. And it's just not really my personality. When I started out, I thought like, oh goodness, I'm not cut out for this. I don't think I can be a teacher, you know, because I thought that I was like a little too soft, which I think I am. And I think I will kind of get a little bit more fiery probably, maybe with time. (laughs) Isn't that what happens usually? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think what happens is, yeah, I think I think I do love to have like those indirect ways of reprimanding like if a student is distracting the class, I love to like call on the student and give and like ask them to give us an answer to a question that I know they can answer. So like like hey buddy, uh I don't say hey buddy, but actually sometimes I do. Like can you 
can you read number four for me, please? You know, just something like that. You know, that I know that they can do. And it, and the, the technique I think is called distract the distractor. I love that. Um, because I think we all, we all get in those, those moments where we're a little bored with what's going on or we'd be more interested in something else. And, and we distract, you know, but I think it's perfectly normal to, to try to invite students back to the conversation, you know? And I think for me, it's, it just, it feels better for me to, to frame things in those ways. I mean, I think phones are like such a big thing too. My students, I think last semester, I honestly never wanted to see phones. Like I didn't even want them on their desks, you know? And so I had, a there was a lot of tension with that. I had a really, really heated incident one time with a student and I actually like walked out in tears. But um, I found a better way to handle it where it doesn't seem like I'm like anti-phones. So I have just like a common sense rule. You know, if I'm talking and I'm giving instruction or you're doing independent or group work, your phone should not be present unless I give you explicit permission. And if for any reason, like you need to contact your parent or like you're getting a phone call, you you absolutely need to answer from a family member. Like you just need to let me know beforehand. So I don't assume and, you know, a conflict is created out of a situation that could have been just a simple, hey, can I go take this? call for my mom she's gonna see who's gonna pick me up from school like you know what I mean so I think yeah so much of my my experience in the classroom feels so intuitive because my parents are teachers and I've just heard so many stories and like they're always willing to give me tips and just listen and so a lot of it feels like I've been in training all my life but then the other parts where I feel like you know this situation I experienced it called like there's a huge conflict in a way you know I can tweak it in a way that works for both of us in a way that's sort of a compromise I guess but classroom management I've been thinking a lot about that too because it's like I think it's like you need to accept that realistically well I don't know do you feel this way that you'll never have like every student's full attention And it's not so much about like learning, like, I feel like there's a misconception with classroom management that it's like every student needs to be like quiet and looking at you and like not doing like touching anything. But that's just like not realistic when you have like a room full of humans, you're not going to like tame them like dogs. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I think it's also such a, a nice exercise in like ego release when you like relinquish that idea of I'm the teacher, I'm the authority figure. And you move to, this is a mutual process. I am learning, you are learning. We are learning from each other. We are in dialogue with each other, you know? I mean, of course there are things that that I have that, that they need, but it doesn't have to be such like, I don't know, have you read um, Paulo Freire, the Brazilian author of, the pedagogy of the oppressed but a lot of it I mean a lot of it is like critical theory and so um I think it was written in 1968 so and I think it's actually the most cited one of the most cited works in social sciences the social sciences I think it's even more cited than Freud and Foucault 
a lot of it, a lot of what he's saying is um, the way that we do education now is oppressive and that we think of it as like a banking system, like it's transactional and the student needs to be filled with all this information versus like a student centered education system where um, we're giving students the tools and also we're like kind of, yeah, like relinquishing that power and it's, and it's a, a process that's a mutual construction um, and it's for the purpose of humanization. So being more human, you know, in this process. And also a lot of it has to do with like revolutionizing, revolutionizing, yes, the system in the sense that um, it's not just about like what these people can, can do in their life, like what capital can be gained, um, but how they can be liberated. Not just from the teacher. It's not like I'm just here to liberate you, you know, but we we do it together. We become more human together. Yeah. And to kind of like self-empower them. Now that makes sense though. Because it's like how many people are have like an education on paper, but like what do they actually end up doing with it in a sense if it never actually was meaningful to them to begin with? That's a good analogy though of like dumping information into students because I need to look in more into this. I was trying to remember, I was talking to Olivia about this, but the idea of like the sage on the stage and when you're teaching and it's like, like I think about it in the literal classroom um, setup that like usually when the desks are all facing forward and it just assumes like the teacher is the one with all this knowledge to like bestow upon you. But I've been thinking like even in my classrooms, like even though the classrooms are set up like that, I think it's worth like I might whenever we do go back in person, I think it's worth it to like rearrange the desks into like small groups or some kind of other seating that makes it literally just moving the desks makes it more collaborative. Right. I agree. And I actually have this experience because my my desk during first semester, we're all facing forward. And then this semester, I have them facing each other. Like there's, I mean, they're still like in a block and they're still in rows, but they're facing, like the students are facing each other. And that just, like they're looking at each other. And they, they can also see me, but I'm not the center here. They're the center. All right, CL. <laughs> what was your favorite class of all time and why? <laughs> My favorite class of all time. I was, this was a, a bit, this made me think a lot, you know? Um, I was between college and high school on this one. Mm. And I think my favorite one was AP English Literature. With Kay McSpadden at York Conference of High School. <laughs> shout because, out. <laughs> shout out, yeah. This was my first AP English class, and it was my senior year of high school. And this is the mm-hmm. class that's supposed to prepare you for for how to think in life and in college. And and I had never had such a rigorous rigorous um I guess lesson 
in philosophy and film and of course like literature so um we did like film criticism and then yeah and just the culture in the class there was like 10 of us maybe so it was small really intimate year long mm-hmm. yeah and i just love that it made me really really love learning at a whole new level and i knew i wanted to study more like that in, in college so yeah i mean that was it for me. It was the first class where I felt like like the knowledge is coming from conversation, like Socratic method type mm. type pedagogy, mm-hmm. I guess. And and it made me feel like I had the space to actually think, as opposed to me being a vessel for information, I could, yeah. you know be this wellspring of knowledge with other people of course like it's a mutual process um yeah learning that's cool you had that before going into smith though yeah absolutely and i think so my older brother luke also had the class and his his girlfriend at the time now wife like they had it together and so it was mm-hmm. it was always interesting to kind of <laughs> Damn. have my brother like go through things before me in a way. Yeah. I mean of course my other siblings did too, but like Luke is just more close to me and so I just felt like in some ways I, I was like a junior student in that class whenever he was taking it. If that makes sense because mm-hmm. I would just hear so much and then whenever it was finally my <laughs> turn, I just was so eager. It's almost like you know, being the youngest child and like whenever you finally get to go to kindergarten, you're like, yes, finally, I'm going to school, <laughs> you know, like I've been waiting for this. I feel like that's a very CL thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for kindergarten. Part of the reason I wanted to start Educate was to collect some qualitative data, for lack of a better word, about the education world. What I mean by that is that I wanted to see what my friends and family have experienced in education, how their stories connect, and where there's room for growth in education based on these conversations. And I'm already starting to see some of those connections. Last episode, I talked to Jordan, who returned to his home state of North Carolina to teach in a rural town similar to the one he grew up in. CL also returned to her home state of South Carolina to teach in her rural-ish community. CL also mentions the idea of asset building which is something Warisa references in her episode too. It makes me hopeful that these kinds of educators are not only my friends, but also that only five episodes into Educate, I can already begin to see the themes in some of these conversations. All that being said, if my guest's educational experiences haven't been that relatable to yours, that's interesting to me too, because I want to know why. What was unique about your educational upbringing? Or what wasn't unique? Okay, that's it for today. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll talk to y'all next episode. Peace out until then. Hey, you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? I was just, okay. You saw that notification too. <laughs> yeah, I can. Hello. Can you hear me? Wait, Where what? My phone? Hold up. Home dog. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, you wait. Hello? I can't hear you. Oh, you can't hear me. Okay, we're going to have to edit this Can you hear me?